The use of marijuana is pretty widespread in our society. The abuse of opioids in particular are increasing pretty rapidly. How should Christians think about the use of drugs? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. I'm Joshua Horn. God created many substances in nature that alter thinking, you know, and one of the most obvious ones is alcohol. But in Scripture, alcohol is pretty heavily regulated. There's lots of Scriptures that talk about the use of alcohol, but there aren't that many that talk about the use of other drugs. So how should Christians be thinking about other drugs? Well, I think, you know, you know, as you're, you're saying, there's, you're not going to find verses that mention marijuana or, you know, opioids, whatever, the, the plants that those come from. And but but you do have a lot of references to alcohol. So I think probably the first step of looking at it would be to say, you know, how does uh, the use of alcohol that Scripture is talking about compare with how people are using these other substances? When you think about how Scripture frames things morally, I mean, one of the things that's important to remember is it largely uses case law. And so there's a part of it where, I mean, Scripture, you know, there's a lot of things that are referenced to the treatment of animals. And you can see Paul in the New Testament say, that law wasn't given to you just because God cares about animals. He does care about animals, but this law was given to you so you could think about how to pay pastors and how to. Pay, I mean, and so there are there are the way that God portrays these moral things is through they give He gives an example and we're to infer it from it. And so I mean, like you said, alcohol is talked about a lot, but there's a lot of things that apply to alcohol that can be applied to many other categories of drugs. And even when we think about the abuse of things like marijuana and opioids and other things, I think statistically, though, alcohol is still the most abused you know, substance like that. It's the one that, that people damage themselves the most with. It's the one that you know, yeah, really consumes a pretty decent you know, percentage of our society. Even though these other things are pretty widespread, alcohol is still very damaging, and we shouldn't just go, well, did God just pick an example? He actually picked the example that in history is probably the – the, the leading example. It's the worst example of the things that, that are causing problems in terms of ingesting of substances. Right. So I think one of the first principles when you think about alcohol, you can think of drunkenness and these other things, but I think we should also recognize that God gave it for some good purposes, and one of the good purposes is, is to use for healing. Like in 1 Timothy five twenty three, Paul's writing to Timothy and says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. And your frequent infirmities. God created alcohol. He put that into the world because it does have have blessings to it. And one of those blessings is that it, it helps with certain conditions. So just to be clear, you are a Baptist pastor who's saying that this word wine actually means wine. It doesn't mean something else. It doesn't mean something else. It means wine. And so, and even in, in, in Exodus where it says you can take strong drink, it means you're allowed to take strong drink. <laughs> Meaning you can take strong drink to the feast in Jerusalem, right? Right. That. Well, you're not saying that the only place you can drink strong drink is at the feast <laughs> in Jerusalem. You're saying the I'm reference. saying that the strong <laughs> drink was given by God for for real purposes, right. and that it's and the purposes aren't just medicinal, but medicinal is one of the purposes. Right. Well, you know, Proverbs thirty one six talks about that. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. So there you have a, a commandment to, to do this. And, I mean, you know, I've had people that, that uh, warned me that if I read this verse to somebody who was depressed that you're going to make a drunkard out of them. And it's like, no, that's not, you know, somebody that's bitter of heart. 
And the reality is God did give wine to cheer, even those who were, you know, what we would call depressed. Does that mean that they should abuse it? No. But it also means that we should we should take what God says and take it seriously. Yeah, and the context here, Proverbs 31, is actually going through a list of here's cases when you should use it and here's cases when you shouldn't use right. it. If you're a king, you, need, you don't need to be doing this. But, hey, if here's people who could use it. Right. And some of the principles that you can derive from that is, I mean, there, you know, we've, we had an episode we did on mental illness, and we talked about how that there are, you know, there are drugs that they give people that are designed to, that alter, you know, that have a very strong effect upon you, upon you. And there are other ones that have a much smaller effect. And some of it, we don't even understand some of the mechanisms of them. But there can be a place, there can be a place for medication in some of these things. But you also shouldn't go you should also be careful because in the end there are admonitions about these things to be to be careful that you shouldn't you know can you can you use other drugs that effectively make you drunk and cause pro- you know what i mean and so but again you should look at scripture for for looking at there are case there are examples of the way to use things and obviously alcohol is it's very clear you can use it in this way but you shouldn't take these verses as that the only thing they can ever apply to is alcohol right and i mean especially when we think of of medicines i mean most of medicines are derivative of plants that, you know, the vast majority of them at some point originated from a plant that people started to use. And so, and, and God gave those plants for good. He gave those plants to be healing. And so the idea that we take something like even heroin or we take something like marijuana and go, there's no good purpose to it. We have to be, we have to be very careful that way too. And to not go and say, you know, this this substance is inherently wrong because that's saying things about God. Now you look at marijuana now and like the stuff, the way they've, they've, uh, you know, genetic splicing and things that it's like a hundred times more powerful than it ever was in nature. Well, that's, you know, arguably that's an evil invention, which is different than how God created it for good. And uh, so we can take something that God created for good, you know, like fentanyl, where we make it in a laboratory, we being mankind, not me. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't just immediately go and say, it's fine to smoke marijuana because it was created by God. When we've taken marijuana and made it something very different than what God created. But on the other hand, if strong drink wasn't referenced in the Bible, people would absolutely say that strong drink is an evil invention, that you're distilling it and that naturally it would never do this and that you have to go through this complicated process so you know i mean i'm not because a lot of right, drugs that are wise. beneficial a lot of drugs that are beneficial have been synthesized and strengthened right and so, so i mean so just the fact that we've synthesized it and strengthened it doesn't mean that it's necess- that it is automatically an evil invention right i mean and this this would go to things like genetic modification I mean, you know gmos you, you could talk about a lot of things where people want to go it's unnatural and you go it no, could be God's, taking dominion. Right. God's given man dominion over But at this. the same time, I don't think you can snap and just say it doesn't matter because right. it's all we've changed natural. it. It's all natural, even though it's very different than anything that God created. And that when you consider these things, right, that alcohol doesn't necessarily translate directly over. You have to make sure that you're applying wisdom to it. So, you know, you have verses like Psalm 104.15, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. And so, and we kind of talked, you know, some similar things about it, that it, you know, alcohol is given for medicinal uses and even for uses beyond medicinal uses. 
Um, but how, so, you know, if we're thinking about that in the terms of drugs, how does that, you know, correlate with marijuana? Are we therefore saying that uh, marijuana is given to make glad the heart of man? You know, in Proverbs 31, where you, I think there's been a couple references to it where, you know, this was immediately before the verse we read before, but it says it's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. And even there, he's not even saying that, that, I mean, the implication there is that it does affect your thinking. And he's not saying at that point that you're necessarily even drunk. Right. He's just saying it affects your thinking. So you don't drink it when you're, when you can't afford to have your thinking affected. Like if you're going to sit in judgment, you should not be drinking. And so, you know, it's because it's really easy to draw the line and say, well, you're sober or you're drunk. And there's a line there where it's starting to affect you. At, at least, you know, maybe you're happier than you would have been otherwise, but it's affecting you in some way that will affect your judgment. Right. It's kind of like we, I mean, it's when you think about the modern definition of drunk driving, and somebody would go, well, that's, you know, that's obviously being drunk if you're drunk driving. And it's like, well, the Bible doesn't say you can only have enough alcohol so that you can safely pass a car, so you can safely drive a car at 60 miles an hour. That's not the biblical standard for being drunk. You know what I mean? No, it, you shouldn't drink enough alcohol that you should not be able to drive a car and then get in a car and drive. You shouldn't right. do that. But it's like it's kind of like you actually have to have a definition of what it means to be drunk, and that may that may be different than what it requires you to be able to drive. And and there are different people who would fall under different categories. There are people who could have a lot more alcohol in their system and be able to drive. And the law, the way we've defined it, says they're drunk and they're not drunk. They could pass the field sobriety test. They could do you know. And, and they could handle all those things. And so, I mean, in the end, it becomes more complicated to define these things, and we've kind of we've kind of created these simplified definitions, and it's really easy for Christians to pretend like it's just this cut-and-dry thing, and it's, there's a lot more variation to it. And to go to a verse that at least is making one rule that's cut-and-dry. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So there is a line where if you are in the drunkenness, there's a lot of verses that say that that is not acceptable for christians it's a biblical drunkenness test you have to walk properly <laughs> wow okay like daytime right, right right exactly night vision <laughs> so are we leaving the door open then that people can be you know as long as they're not you know they're making sure they're not using the hundred times stronger should they be you know eating the the, you know, the brownies should they be you know smoking a moderate amount of marijuana so i think you've got to start with you know, you've got to start with the basic principles. Don't start with the, the arguments that the 18-year-old kid's bringing you. You know, start with the basic principles of God made the world, and in the state in which God made the world, it was good. Now, sin comes in, complicates things, corruption enters the world. But but the there are good uses for the things that God made out of the world. But there's because of sin, there's also the possibility to abuse those good things. So you can take you can take any good thing that God's made, and you can see how there's a sin that's a perversion of that good thing. And and you can say, look, just because you just because that there are good uses in Scripture for alcohol um, doesn't mean that you can exactly map those same good uses onto a, a drug or a particular th- substance that's derived from a plant, if you will, you know, 
take the word drug out of it for a moment. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not something good that can be drawn from the the hemp plant by any means. Like rope. <laughs> right, right. You know, and, and I don't think anybody objects to making rope out of a plant. You know, there, nobody looks at that and says that there's something morally bound up with it. Rope pun intended. There's also the possibility that there's a good way to eat that plant. Because in the world that God originally made, except for one tree, there's no restrictions on eating the green things that God's made. And there's, until sin comes in, there's not not quite the consequences of them that we've got to deal with now. And it's because of the consequences that we have to deal with drunkenness, which is really, it, it's really dealing with the sin of having a lack of self-control. So when you start to say, okay, which of these drugs would be leading towards that lack of self-control in, you know, context-dependent in situations in which I have to have a particular level of control, whether or not I'm sitting in judgment, whether or not I'm driving heavy machinery, you know, any of those kinds of things. You've got to deal with those kinds of things. And it seems to me that, you know, there are biblical commandments like take every thought captive. And if you've used alcohol or any other drug to the point where you can't take your thoughts captive, then you're in sin. And so, I mean, so part of it in figuring this out is how do you bound it? Right, because you can bound it by, I'd have a real problem by bounding it saying that this thing that God made that can be useful for somebody that has pain, you know, the, the give strong drink to the dying man. Well, does that mean that somebody who's in pain, that marijuana relieves their pain, that they can't use marijuana? But at the same time, if they use it to the point where they've lost their ability to think, you know that's sin. And so you're starting to draw bumpers as to where, where you know, the allowable behavior is. I mean, one of the things with, with pain use and pain regulation is, is the more pain you're in, the less the drug, less certain types of drugs particularly affect you. I mean, like, so, like, if I'm not in any pain at all and I could take the amount of, of an opioid that someone who's in a massive amount of pain regularly takes, and that could make me fall asleep pretty quickly, they take it and they function throughout the day just fine because they're in an incredible amount of pain and it dulls their pain. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, actually being in pain changes the way the drug interacts with your body. And so, I mean, and so there's this part of it where people want to go, well, I'm taking the same amount. That the, you know what I mean? And there's this whole people pretend like everything's just this flat line and everything's the same no matter what. And that's not true. And things having a purpose and having a point in what you're doing with them, what you're trying to do with them, that really does matter. I, when we talked about this a few years ago at the church, you know, well, thankfully, you know, there's a lot of people in the church who don't have personal experience with drugs. But, you know, people who do, the, the point was made that in, in, their, in their judgment that, you know, the recreational use of marijuana, that there wasn't a way to do that. There was not drunkenness. There was not mind altering. So, you know, yes, it has a place for medicine. It has a place for, you know, other things. But if you're, you, that there, it doesn't have the effect of, you know, making glad the heart that wine does, but that, you know, once the effect kicks in, that it is then akin to drunkenness. And the question even with, with a lot of these drugs, they aren't making you cheerful because it, we, we're using that, right? It makes the, the sorrow heart glad. We're using that those verses in a lot of these drugs, that's, that's not the effect that heroin has. That's not, you know, 
Not that I've ever used heroin, but just for clarity. <laughs> but I wonder in some of these things, we can read it and we can go, oh, smoking marijuana makes you cheerful. The people that I've known that have used marijuana, that would not be how I would describe their behavior when they're on marijuana. And now it's been many years since I've known somebody that was using marijuana, but but cheerful is not the right term. Lethargic, maybe? which is very different, right? And so part of it is as we apply these and say it's good to be cheerful, well, I'm not sure taking anything that makes you lethargic. And like you said, if they're actually in pain, it's relieving their pain. They're not going to become lethargic. They're going to become more productive, more useful. And so we can read that and say cheerful, but a lot of these drugs, that's not the effect people report to having it, right? I mean, and so, I mean, like Joshua was saying, some people are saying you go straight to drunkenness. I'm not sure that that even if you didn't, that where you're going to is cheerfulness. I mean, you just look at some of the category distinctions that Scripture makes that we've talked about for how you use alcohol. Some of those reasons that you use alcohol are therapeutic reasons. Some of them are recreational reasons. And, and so when you come to any other substance and you start putting it into those categories, you can say, okay, is there a therapeutic use? for marijuana is there you know in in which it would be you know the the use of that for that kind of therapy is appropriate such that it's not impairing you in other kinds of ways or in other contexts is there an appropriate recreational use for marijuana that one seems a lot harder to justify i mean rope can be fun tying knots (laughs) rope swings rope swings yeah 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 you're a hemp enthusiast (laughs) (laughs) It's not how I advertise Is that what all those stores, those hemp stores are selling? Another difference is there's lots and lots and lots and lots of people that have used alcohol moderately for lots of years. I'm not sure you see the same behavior with something like marijuana. I mean, they're even seeing dramatic increases in abuse with the— you know, with legalization in some of these states. I mean, it's it's causing real problems. Now they're going to hide it because, you know, some politicians are very pro into legalizing marijuana, but it's not it's not the same where God has designed alcohol that that you know, for a lot of years people drank alcohol at every meal because if you drink water you get really sick unless you're unless you're very careful about where you're getting water from. I mean, like on ships, they would give rum every day to the person or to the to the sailors on the ship, not because they were trying to get the sailors drunk, but that if you didn't have the alcohol in the water, that they'd get sick. And so, you know, alcohol has been used for millennia very differently than something like marijuana. And it, and it doesn't have this increasing rate where it seems to me that there's like, you know, you can see it much more in heroin, but it's really most heroin addicts don't go, oh, I've, I shoot up this and I'm just in complete control of it. It, it tends to increase a lot more than alcohol does. I mean, heroin, in fact, is one of the drugs that, that people make the argument that there's no way to even beat the addiction to. I mean, which is not true, but I'm just not saying, I mean, but there are people, I mean, but that's the level that you're talking about is there are people who literally make the argument that there's no way to get over heroin addiction. Right. Which is not the same as marijuana. Right. Right. No, no. I'm just saying, but he yeah. just, he admit, I mean, but, when but you, it's we, amazing. They get thrown to prison for a year and they, they're off heroin. Right. <laughs> and they don't die or anything. Right. So it's, they, they can't overcome their desire for it because it really is. And one of the things that we haven't really talked about here, it is good to desire to be cheerful. That's not inherently sinful. It's good desire to desire if you're in pain to have the pain 
you know, alleviated. Those things aren't sinful. And so part of the question is, is it revelry? I mean, is there a reason that you're using that drug, the heroin or whatever else it is, that you're using it for a goal that is not a biblical goal? And I would say I think probably – I'd probably – I mean, my view is that they probably fall into that category if you're not using them for medicinal purposes. One of the barriers we're running into here is we don't necessarily have personal experience with it, but I think there's a there's an issue where I don't know that you have to have personal experience with the drug to actually have some basic principles about it. I mean, one of the things that, you know... You don't have to commit adultery so that you can talk about adultery. Right. I mean, but there are people who would... I mean, there are people who would suggest this. that's the case, is that... You have to have personal experience with it to be able to, to deal with it. I mean, when people make arguments for marijuana, I'm not sure. If, I mean, the arguments that I hear that they make is just that you have individual freedom to do. It's more of just a libertarian argument. You have freedom to do things. You have freedom to do that. You it's have your to body. Come, right. And and that's not a very strong biblical argument just to be able to argue that you can do you can do whatever with your body. God says that he owns us. God says that we belong to him. So you actually have to justify your actions. And there's this part of it where I mean I think that's that's the way you should approach that's the way you should approach most things is you need not just to say does the Bible say this is wrong you need to you need to have an argument for why this is good you need to have an right. argument for why this isn't a thing that God would approve of. And I think that's really important because you know if you start out by just saying you know well it's not explicitly forbidden that's a very different thing than saying, is this pleasing in God's sight? And what we're supposed to do, this is the love of God to obey his commandments. What we're supposed to do is those things that are pleasing in his sight. And it does say, take, you know, a little wine for your stomach, right? I mean, it does say that you should treat things. And it seems to me, he also said very clearly that all green things have been given for food or to consume. And so when we look at those things, you still have to say, is it furthering us towards the goal that we should have? as servants of God, or is it, you know, and alcohol definitely has a place for doing that. I mean, for a long time it was used, you know, very, it was the most common medication that was used would be alcohol. And one thing that we do with alcohol and that we, that we do with these drugs, and we need to be careful not to, to do that, is we start to make the drug the problem and the drug's not the problem. You know, there is no such thing as alcoholism there's drunkards. Alcoholism is a way to shift the excuse from the behavior and the sin of the person who's consuming too much alcohol and shifting it to the the substance, to the alcohol. And it's very easy to do that with marijuana and forget that the person is choosing to sin with it is the problem. It's not the substance that's a problem, it's that they're choosing to sin with it. Yeah, and when you say there's no such thing as alcoholism, what you mean is, go ahead, open up your Bible or pick your favorite concordance app and look up the word alcoholism, and it's not there. The Bible doesn't use that as a category. It doesn't use this sort of of, of language of addiction as the way that you describe somebody whose life is dominated by drink, by wine, by beer, by strong drink, by any of those things. But it does talk about that kind of person. Right. It talks about them as a drunkard. It talks about them as somebody who lacks self-control. It talks about them as somebody who's a slave to sin. And we'd be much better 
if we stuck with the biblical ways of describing it rather than taking these modern glosses that want to downplay the moral agency of somebody who's in that kind of state. This isn't to say that, uh, you know, that addiction is not a real medical thing in any way, because there are things, you know, things that if you're addicted to, you're taking regularly, that if you stop, you might even die. Um, But the program, there's a program where you get off of it, and now you're off of it. But, you know, you have all these people going to rehab, and then they are clean, they're off their physical addiction is over. They've gone through withdrawal, all these things. And then, you know, I don't know the numbers, but nine times out of ten, they end up back on whatever substance they were on. And it's not because the physical addiction kicked in because that was done with. That was over. They were off of it. It's because they they liked the the, the mental effects that that substance was giving them. And so they their desire for that was more powerful than you know, the desire to live a stable life. And what we would like to do to describe that situation is we would like to say that the problem and the blame is in the thing that they were addicted to and not in the heart's desire for that thing, the fact that they have no self-control, the fact that they're a slave to a sin. And I think even like with heroin, you look at the studies and heroin addiction is very overblown. It almost never happens. Alcohol addiction is, that's real. People die. I think one out of four people die if they're not treated, if they're, when they get DTs and stuff, which right. is the, Delirium you know, tremens, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, alcohol is a real addictive substance. But like John Heroin, Do- there's very little evidence of that. A lot of that is literary things that people have spun up to say how difficult it is. But if you put them in situations where, I mean, there's just, you can't die well, from withdrawal. You can go cold turkey on heroin and you will not die. Part of what you're pointing out, what Joshua was saying, if you actually go and you look up the definition of addiction, in fact, if you search on Google for the definition of addiction has changed, you'll find secular articles written about how over the past 40, 50 years, and some of it even the past 20 years in particular, where the definition of addiction, the medical definition has changed drastically. Right. Because it used to mean, like he was saying, there could be physical dependencies within the body where if you didn't have this substance, your body would have very negative reactions. But again, this was over a short period of time. I mean, like a week that they that these things, and if you had medical treatment, you could be taken care of. And once you're over that, that addiction is done. Whereas now the definition of addiction has become any desire that has basically gotten to the point where it causes you negative effects. Right. Which is in, but instead of it, if it's desire, it's driven by you and the, and it's being assigned to the substance. I mean, think of the difference between drunkard and alcoholic, a drunkard, the assignment of the blame is on the drinking, the alcoholic, it's the assignment is on the alcohol in drug addict, they're doing all the same thing where they're trying to shift the blame from saying this is sin and this is your problem and shifting it to the problem on the substance. And so when we look at all these things, the problem is not with the substance. The problem is with the person using the substance in a sinful way. Right. I mean, you go back to, to during Prohibition and when these things, when the, the temperance movement started, the language, the demon liquor, the demon rum. I mean, right. we'll talk about demonizing things. I mean, they literally demonized alcohol, the language that they use. And I mean, and, hey, I mean, I don't know. I think it's worth pointing out in the last 15 years in the church, the Lord of the Rings has been incredibly popular. And one of the things that's essential— In the church? Oh, in the church. Lord of the Rings is incredibly popular. 
And it's very popular in the world as well, but I mean, it's, it's incredibly popular in the church. But it's and, a Roman Catholic story. I know. And, and one of the central themes of the Lord of the Rings is this idea of this externalization of evil. And I mean, but I mean, in the church, it is, I mean, it has, it has become a way that the church uses to think about Christianity. I mean, it's, it's crazy how much of an influence it's had, and it's very popular in the world as well. And so, I mean, the, the church has embraced this idea of the externalization of evil. I, I want to say, you know, look at the parallel sin that Scripture talks about that, that is the, the sister of, of drunkenness. It's gluttony. Right. And you've got this long history of, of demonizing the alcohol itself. But, you know, I, I, I want to say that nobody really demonizes fat and sugar. And, oh, you don't know Bloomberg but, and New York City. But 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 I you know, that's what I want to say. But I you know, but you can see, but just look at the way that people are starting to talk about those things that lead to gluttony is we're moving the agency away from the person and we're putting it in the thing. And it's that it's that refined sugar, it's that processed food. It's those are the things that are to blame for your lack of self-control. It's not you. And then, you know, addiction to prescription drugs, you know, that kind of blows the whole thing because these are things that a doctor says you need and pretty much everyone acknowledges some people need this prescription, but then people use it for, you know, you know, recreationally and and you know, then they're addicted to it and it obviously has a good use and has a bad use. Hey, we, as we talk about these things and talk about the shift, we have to recognize that that shift came from the church, right? Because this is the shift between is your sin your problem that you need God to rescue you from, or is your sin because of what the world has done to you? And the, you know, the Arminian view is you have this core of good in you and that it's the world that's holding you back because it's what's stopping you from making the decision. And as soon as you reject the idea of God's sovereignty and election, in the end, you're saying external things are what's stopping you from coming to God. So the church shifted the blame to the world, and now society's catching up. And even when you talk about you know, the temperance movement and stuff, that was always very, that was very right. much an, an Arminian movement because it has to be. Because you know, the Reformed go, abuse of alcohol, that's your sin. And the Arminian goes, it's the alcohol that did it. Right. And it comes to do with original sin, with the idea that children are born sinful. You know, uh, there's the idea that the, the snow falls down white and it's the world that makes it dirty and muddy. You know, the children are born pure and, and then the world. You've heard a lot them. more of these than I have. <laughs> and, well, I mean, but, but it's also part, it's motivated partly for how do we deal with the very real problem, the actual real problem of people who do use alcohol abusively, who, who, who use alcohol and then have no self-control, what would be easier in a sense? Would it be easier to do all of the difficult pastoral work of, of dealing with a person who doesn't have self-control or, hey, let's just shut down all the alcohol, confiscate it all? You know, and, and in a sense, it's like, oh, I, can, I, know, I know the steps for dealing with that. I know what it would take to pass certain laws and shut well, down they certain factories. Well, they found out it was a lot harder than they thought, but <laughs> right. yes, I but understand. At least, but at least, you know, you can map that out because the other one is dealing with a human heart. Right. And that, I mean, that's hard. That's really hard. You can't make a program for that. You can't pass a law that cuts to the human heart. Associated with this is a rejection of eternity because it was the church that was driving the 
the temperance movement. And if you're worried about their eternal soul, forcing them to stop drinking now, what have you done for them? Nothing, really. All they're going to do is they won't be drunk for 70 years, and then they'll burn in hell for the rest of their life. But, you know, if you're looking at their eternal soul, you have to deal with the hard problem because that's the problem that needs to be solved. Other than that, you're just trying to deal with the problem that you think you can solve because you think you have the power to solve it. But all you're doing is shifting their sin. And it's, I mean, that debate, the temperance debate that we were talking about that led to prohibition and all the difficulty is in in that structural sense absolutely no different than the gun control debate where we've taken the problem and we've moved it out of human heart into something we can solve. Let's make laws about guns. And solve. Then, right. And, and it's something the same that thing we that they... think that we can solve, that <laughs> right. we can mentally roadmap, uh, here's how we would fix this. Because how do you deal with a whole bunch of angry young men who want to shoot up a school? That's, that's really difficult to, to manage. And in a lot of ways, that might be easier than gun control. But, but to manage them, what you have to start out with is an understanding of who they are. And if you reject who they are as people, and you say they're just good people that have problems, then you can never solve that problem because you've rejected the problem before you tried to solve it. And so then you're stuck just dealing with guns because they've tried to deal with guns and it hasn't worked. They know that it, I mean, they're going to say, oh, we'll do a, we'll do a, you know, Bi-bi-bi. high capacity magazine ban and all this other stuff. And they know it's not going to do anything, but they, they reject the basic problem. So you can't solve it if you reject the basic problem. The basic problem is why are we producing angry young men? Let's figure that out. That sounds hard. Bible <laughs> says it's not that hard. <laughs> Shine light in dark places. But if you have certain categories of thinking about the world... That sounds exactly. really hard. That's what I'm saying is that they've rejected the problem so they can't solve it because they've really rejected the problem in the first place. And they've re- if you misdefine the problem, you'll never get the right answer. Because then the problem might cut through your own heart. Right. And that's, that's scary to deal with. Yep. As you start thinking about some of the, the sins that involve alcohol or other related drugs, I mean, as you look in Scripture where it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I mean, this kind of just ties directly to what you guys have been saying, basically, what you were kind of arguing for is if if you view these things incorrectly, if you... If you believe that the carnal things are the, is the is the only thing that there is, if you believe the carnal thing is the most is the thing that Christianity came to fight directly, then you're going to approach the world very differently. But if you actually believe that the problem is the invisible things of the world, that it is strongholds, that it is sin, that it is that it is changing the way that that we think about sin, that it is that it is changing the way people think about God, their duty towards God, that it, thinking about the way that disobedience needs to be dealt with, all of a sudden you begin to look at these problems very differently, and you begin you know, and you can look at how that alcohol in the end, it, the abuse of it ends up causing ends up causing specific sins. There are specific sins that are associated with the abuse of these things. I mean, and, and those sins are what need to be dealt with, not the substance. When the temperance movement started, or you know, like the Salvation Army and stuff that were starting that, right, they were looking at it and saying, the weapons of our warfare 
are carnal, right? right? Because that's basically their their position. But then you take somebody like um, Spurgeon, who's a little bit earlier, but not much, about the same time. And in England, it was a far worse problem than in the United States, like far worse. Gin shop on every corner. They're not even in comparison to what it was in the United States. And yet, through the preaching of the word, through other people starting to preach the word, there was a real turning away from the gin shops and the shutting down of the gin shops in, in England. And you compare that to the total failure of the temperance movement in the United States. I mean, it ends up that they, you know, pass prohibition, but that doesn't really do anything either. I mean, it might reduce, you know, those who are lawful, just like with the guns, those who are lawful will stop drinking. But, you know, even I was listening to a book today, actually, that was talking about how in the White House, how much booze they had everywhere during prohibition. I mean, it didn't even stop the politicians from drinking. And so it didn't actually do anything. But if you take the spiritual battle, that's how you can actually have victory. But they reject the spiritual battle, and if you reject the problem, you're not going to solve the problem. And another sin associated with, uh, you know, excess in alcohol, excess in drugs is uh, sorcery, which is one that, you know, it's not very, not not talked about a lot today. But, you know, you look, especially historically, and it's just a very real thing, you know. Uh, you know, idol worship, demon worship, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, you know, intoxication that went along with that. You know, I think I forget that whatever the drug is, but even now, you know, some of the Native American worship, they have exceptions to use the drug because that's part of their history. You I mean, know, peyote is one of them. Right, right. So, you know, whether, you know, whether it was idol worship or demon worship, whatever they were doing, it involved, you know, intoxication with that drug. And, you know, another example, if you've, uh, you know, read much Greek history, you hear about the Oracle of Delphi all the time. Um, and it, it's pretty interesting that it's... Uh, that it's it seems very likely that you know that that this prophetess of Apollo um, what would do it while give these prophecies while intoxicated and you know according to the ancient historians her prophecies were accurate so you know you from the Christian perspective sounds like you know demon connection with the demon there through this uh, through this intoxication and one of the theories that has some geological evidence is that there that. Uh, that uh, you know, temple or where the oracle was was over like a volcanic area where there's cracks or even the gases coming up could very possibly have contributed to that. So even the location was was even set up for that. But all that to say, there is this real connection. And I think even when they when she would prophesy that she went down. So I mean, I thought there was right. There was like a chamber and went down below in the chamber where there would be the collection of these gases. So. It seems very likely. And, you know, even when you read in uh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, where it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, but just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That word sorcery there is pharmacia. I mean, it's translated medicine in Greek at times. And so even when, you know, obviously the context here is abuse. It's not saying that you're doing it, you know, it's sin to heal. The work of the flesh are evident if you're healing somebody. No, no, it's not saying that. But it is saying that those abuses, it can mean medicine or it can mean sorcery. 
and here the context is sorcery because they're abusing those medications. I mean, you know, you have a with the multiple meanings, you have a similar thing with drugs, taking drugs. Well, that could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Right. I mean, when you, I mean, so you look, first of all, drugs are, drug and drug use is related with a lot of these other activities as well. I mean, everything from sexual activities to, to whether it's violence, whether it's lewdness, whether it's idolatry. I mean, you look historically, like, you know, hallucinogenic drugs were used in, in different forms of worship. And so, I mean, there's this part of it where I think when we think of, when we think of demonic things, we think of the occult. And there's this part of it where, I mean, when the Bible talks about demonic things, it talks about being earthly, sensual, against things that are against God. And so there's this part of it where we have this idea that if it's demonic, it must be magic. Right. And demonic isn't magic. It, I mean, and so there's this part of it where, I mean, I think there's this disconnect in our mind. And I'm not saying that there is not a connection, that there can't be a connection with the spiritual world. But I'm saying it's not fundamentally this magical thing. It's when you look at what, when you look at someone who was demon possessed, they weren't doing magic. They were do. They were all the time, right? But I'm saying, uh, right? I'm just saying when you look at demonic people, what they were doing was they did things that other people necessarily couldn't explain. But they also were. It was sometimes they were physically stronger. Sometimes they were just. Well, sometimes they were deaf. Sometimes, some, right, they, sometimes were, they were deaf. Sometimes yeah. they were mute. Sometimes they fell into the fire. Sometimes they fell into the water. I mean, you know, what I mean, and so these are things that are just they're just connected to things in the world. But scripture identifies them as being related to demons. And, you know, on that topic, I mean, I think that's something we also touched on on an episode on mental illness. And that's that's somewhat related to some of the, you know, that's kind of a whole other category that we're probably not going to get into today, where there are certain categories of drugs which are different than the ones we've mostly been talking about. But they are, you know, compounds that have real mental effects. Right. And, you know, when you look at alcohol and, you know, God talks about it making your heart glad. You know, obviously, he's not saying that as long as you're not drunk. I mean, he's not saying that's the work of the flesh, right? Because he said that's fine. And so when we're talking about this, we need to, to recognize that there's lines here, right? Because can you, can you smoke marijuana, not for pain, but for recreation and not being a work of the flesh? My expectation is the answer is no, that you can't. As opposed to alcohol, clearly you can. Part of it is from the verse in 2 Corinthians where it says, you know, taking every thought captive, is that alcohol doesn't inherently take it away from that or doesn't inherently reduce that. It might change your judgment somewhat, which is why you're not supposed to drink if you're sitting in judgment. But it doesn't seem to me that it's inherent that it's you're losing your ability to think. But I think a lot of these drugs, that's kind of the purpose of them. That's what people want them for is to lose their ability to think. And so when we think about the sin of not taking every thought captive, I mean, to me, it seems to me that's really, if you think that you can take marijuana and not sin, ask yourself, are you thinking clearly? Are you still able to reason? Are you still able to take your thoughts captive? And same with alcohol. If you get to the point where you can't, you need to stop drinking. You're a drunkard. Or you're not necessarily a drunkard, but you're drunk. And so, you know, some of these standards we need to start you know, looking, what is the biblical standard? At what point does it become a work of the flesh? I mean, one of the other things that is associated with, I think, the abuse of, of alcohol, I think it's in Habakkuk where it talks about, woe to the person who gives strong drink to his neighbor so that he can see them naked. 
And sure. and there's just I mean so there's this there's a use of of drugs, alcohol, whatever, to oppress others effectively, to cause others to lose their judgment so you can therefore take advantage of them. And and this is, I think this is a fairly common usage. Every Friday night, right? <laughs> I mean, this is the, it happens in bars all over the country. So, right. and I, you know, I suspect you're right that, that a lot of young men give drugs to young women for the same reasons. Right. And so, I mean, I just, you know, when you look at, when you look at, sins that are associated with these things i think that's that's probably a a very common one and sometimes the women who go there go there so that they can lose control you know what i mean there there are times where they're taken advantage of and there are times where they're taken advantage of because they would like to be taken advantage of and so there's you know i mean i mean you look at one of the things that it does is it allows you to to do things that you normally wouldn't allow yourself to do if you're, you can, if you're purposely taking something because you know it's going to lower your inhibitions, then you've, you, your intentions have already crossed the line into bad use. Right. I just don't feel like I can worship God without a little bit of alcohol in me. No one ever said. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's not the right. I mean, nobody's lowering their inhibitions to go and do righteous things. It was always a lowercase g on the God. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, and, I mean, and this is the reason I say that is, if you talk to people who are trying to defend drug usage, I mean, you can look at drug culture and the way that drug culture talks about drugs and why they take drugs. And then you can talk to people who defend it, and they will talk about it completely differently than the way that drug culture talks about drugs. If you look up and read why people use drugs and why people take these types of drugs, they will talk about it. I mean, sometimes we'll, they'll talk about very blatant terms of why they're taking it. This allows me to forget about this. This allows me to not think about this. This allows me to do this. And then you'll hear people turn around and defend it, and they'll go, when I'm under, I am in total control. I can think about everything. I mean, and they will just, it is, it is completely contradictory to the way that drugs are actually talked about. And people just, they will use, they will just lie. They'll I, just flat out lie. I feel like you can have a really interesting conversation with a libertarian over drug policy and what the federal government or state government ought to be regulating with the nature of drugs. You can have really interesting conversations there. And then you have to turn around to that libertarian and say, and you have no personal self-control, Mr. 25-year-old kid. You should not be taking any of these drugs that you're so interested in the government not regulating anymore. Right. There's a book by uh, Dalrymple that um, he goes through and talks about how the basically the people who wrote literature that they would write this literature about how it freed them and that made them more productive and everything else and then you read other things that they wrote and they saw all the problems with their drug use and so they were intentionally and the the media intentionally published things that made it sound like it was you know I think the books romancing the opiates but they were trying to make it romantic and sound like these drugs but even the people that were using them were talking about how how terrible it was and how destructive it was but yet the media was picking it up and they were publishing and these people were trying to publish it to say how wonderful it is so even individuals were doing exactly the same thing that you're talking about and i mean you know you're talking about like that the actual romantic period in art right. you're talking about people like shelley and byron and how they had this very public use of of drugs and how we we started creating this association of these drugs as being mind-altering, mind-freeing. They they unlocked somebody's artistic potential and something like that. And and right. and we've kept up with that fable of 
Yeah, Steve Jobs talking about how he used LSD and it just opened up his mind. And there's lots of people that have fallen into that same same category that, you know, they have a problem with drugs. But instead of saying I have a problem with drugs, what they say is, oh, yes, this is just so wonderful. And they just ignore the real effects that it has and the real negative effects that it has. I mean, alcohol is a really good example. I mean, in some ways, you know, we've, we've now we've talked about doing an episode on alcohol. We've probably done the episode on alcohol now because, I mean, in the church, there are people who will go, Scripture has a lot of warnings about alcohol, and Scripture does have a lot of warnings about alcohol. And at the same time, Scripture says you are, you are free and allowed and even at times encouraged to drink some amount of alcohol and to do it in moderation and to do it with regulation. But again, there are real warnings about it. I mean, in Proverbs 23, 31 through 35, it says, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? And even when you read that, I mean, to me, that sounds like people that were on drugs more than alcohol, right? I mean, the idea of your eyes will see strange things, that's hallucination is, yeah, that's the whole point, right? I mean, a lot of these things are hallucinations. Of a certain category, right? Because, I mean, a lot of them, not the opioids, but a lot of them are specifically to give you so that your eyes see strange things. So it's really hard in a case where it's not treatment for pain, where the pain, like you said, your body processes it differently. But if you're trying to smoke marijuana because you'll you'll see strange things, if you're trying to take LSD because you'll see strange things, I'm sorry, that by definition, I mean, by the definition in Proverbs 23, that is drunkenness. You can't get away from it. So if you're using any of these to produce a hallucination, you know it's sin. You know, there's a lot of, in the Reformed media culture, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on alcohol. Um, and, you know, I think I think there could be some valid criticism of that, really. You know, everything needs to be all, alcohol all the time. <laughs> you know, and, you know, the same thing with, uh, you know, well, and even like women, you know, I need my wine to get through the through the day. You know, that doesn't seem like a very biblical approach to it. You know, not that not that I'm saying you shouldn't be drinking alcohol, but is, if that's what all you're talking about. Or that's not all. If you're talking about that so frequently, you know, what type of priority are you putting on it? I mean, if you are, if you're part of those conversations in those reformed forums because you have rediscovered the truths of Scripture after coming out of the fundamentalist heritage that most evangelicals have, then okay, that's one thing. But if it's because you're a young man who's attracted to all of those other sins that get listed alongside drunkenness, if, you're, if your temptations are for licentiousness and revelries and lusts, then this is something you ought to back off of. You shouldn't look on the wine while it's red and sparkles in the cup. You're just, you're feeding those temptations. But, I mean, you know, the, what is it, young, uh, restless and reformed group. Cage stage Calvinism. (laughs) Well, I mean, even all those and some people that are periphery to those, what bothers me about them is also, you know, I agree with everything you said, but in addition to that, they talk about it an awful lot. Like we use wine for the Lord's Supper every week, right? We do the Lord's Supper. We use wine every week. How often do we have conversations about wine? 
like never. I, like, mean, there, like, I hear a lot of complaints. When, <laughs> yeah, like I complain when I, because I really don't like wine. The, but so, other than that. so we typically have conversations about it when somebody's visiting, and we have to lean over and whisper and say, "Hey, by the way, it's actually wine. Don't be surprised. It's not grape juice." Right. That's but, when we have conversations. But the focus of our discussions, the focus, never. Of, yeah, we never talk about it because the focus is supposed to be God. And what I find in the the young, restless, and reformed, which is probably an outdated term now because that was 20 years ago, but still, what I see in there was the big push for alcohol. And what I've heard, even though I don't watch many podcasts, is that a lot of the podcasts that are reformed, they all talk about what kind of drink they're drinking and all this other stuff. There's so many more important things to talk about. It's not that there's anything wrong with alcohol, but it's not that, you know, why is your heart sad all the time that you need to drink? Right. I mean, and it's not wrong to drink and it's not wrong to enjoy a glass of wine. I'm not saying anything's wrong with it. But boy, if your focus is taken off of God towards it, you've got a problem. And I saw, you know, a lot of that in the Young, Restless and Reform movement. You're saying that if, generally speaking, you were able to look at that Reform sub-community and say, you know what, this Reform community really isn't, they're not obsessed with earthly things. You wouldn't have been concerned right. about those conversations, right. but you look at everything else, and you're like, and especially a, there's I mean, a whole even lot of conversation, or or there, you know, even if they talked about you know steak or something else or food or something instead of alcohol at the time, but there's a a yeah. lot of focus on alcohol, which is, and even if they all just focused on food and alcohol, and I mean, is it that much different than a lot of very very worldly and wicked? you know men's magazines no it's not that's what they all talk about and so that's what they're attracting to and you know the fact that it's not wrong to use alcohol doesn't mean that that should be the focus of of what you talk about especially not at church and about the meetings that you have and you know when we have new year's eve i think we have a few bottles of wine around if somebody wants a glass of wine that's fine but we don't talk about it or you know it's just the focus. <laughs> the just first seems rule to of wine club is you don't talk about <laughs> no, wine. No, no. The, the first, the first rule of church is that the focus isn't on wine. It's not wine club, right? <laughs> yeah, that, there you go. The first church. The God first hates whining. He does, but that's another story. That could be another podcast. One of the reasons why I think it's been useful to use alcohol as the main topic of discussion as we've gone through this is because. We're talking about drugs, and people go, alcohol's not a drug, and the term drug really doesn't exist. You know what I mean? In the sense of, like, what what's a... you know The taxonomy it, of it is pretty random. Right. It's like, what, what's a chemical? You know what I mean? I don't like chemicals. Well, it's, I mean, one of my favorite posters was from a group called We Love Chemicals, and it was an apple with all the ingredients, you know, all the chemicals that make up an apple listed. And, I mean, but in the end, alcohol is a drug. It It's as much of a drug as these other things are. And like you said in the passage where we were reading where it talked about, you know, I will see, you know, I'll see, I'll see strange things. My heart will utter perverse things, all, all these things. Like you said, that that sounds like somebody on drugs, but we go, oh, that's just alcohol. Alcohol is just, I mean, and I think it's just really important to ground yourself in this because it's so easy to separate things, to, to put this over here and pull this over here. And scripture doesn't really give us that freedom. It goes, no, you, you need to. You need to consider these things. And, and you need to consider the sin rather than the substance. Right. And, and that's, just, that's just really key. Because, I mean, as, cause there's a part of it where there are drugs that are prescription drugs or over-the-counter drugs that there can be abuse of, that there can be real problems with. There can be that you can allow your sin 
to be dominant in your life by the use of these things. And so, I mean, and I think and they're, and they're just as much of a drug as anything else, even though we like to kind of, again, create these fake distinctions. And, I mean, you, if you, you can look at Scripture, and Scripture does tell you, it, it talks a lot about alcohol because the, the dangers with it are higher. But even just reading through Proverbs, you can take something like honey, where on the one hand, Solomon's going to say, hey, eat honey because it's good. On the other hand, he's going to say, don't eat too much honey unless you vomit. And that's it. Structurally, that's not any different than the, than the way he's dealing with alcohol. It's, but the problem is not in the thing itself. The problem is in you who's consuming this good thing that God's made. And, I mean, I do think that, you know, the difference between tasting honey and vomiting because the honey is probably wider. So I think part of the reason that it talks more about alcohol is you can slip from one place to the other pretty easily. Right? I mean, it's not like you, you know what I mean? You have to drink a lot or eat a lot of honey before you start to, like, vomit. <laughs> right. And so well, it's regulated. But, I mean, I understand that it's the right hand and the left hand. And I think one of the reasons it talks about it so much more is just because – as you're walking down that path, it's easy to go too far. Those idea that because it's external, therefore what we'll do is we'll put somebody else in the, as an intermediary to make sure that it doesn't get abused. So you create this whole system that we've created in this country of prescription drugs to say you can't have this without somebody saying, yes, you really need this. And, I mean, that creates another whole, you know, another whole set of problems that it didn't solve any more than gun control solves the problem with guns. Prescriptions don't solve the, the problem with, you know, with prescription drugs, with hallucinogenic drugs. Right. Is that, you know, in the end, what's happening now is a lot of the opioid addiction is actually driven by that to the point where, where was it Kentucky or Tennessee or one of those states that, you know, they sued and lost a huge amount of money, a huge settlement, because basically the drugs were push, or the, excuse me, the doctors were pushing so many of the opioids in some cases that it was, you know, the, they held the drug company, you know, responsible because they should have known that none of this was legitimate prescriptions. But we think that you're going to solve the problem by putting another sinner in the middle. Right. That isn't like actually exposing it. That's not the solution to the problem. All you're doing is getting somebody else to collect a lot of money. And, you know, I don't know the, the merits of the lawsuit, but it also is not the drug. In the end, it's not the drug company that is that you can't you can't solve the drug problem by going after the drug company. You can't solve the drug problem by going off the Mexi- after the Mexican cartels. You know, it's, they might both do a lot of evil, but the problem is in people who want to escape from reality. Right. But the but the whole idea that you can't, you know, push drugs in a way that's sinful and damaging and destructing just because you put a doctor there. That's just proven not to work. I mean, that's that's most doctors when they ask for for, you know, what's your pain level, they're going to prescribe based on the pain level, not based on anything else, because they're not really allowed to look at anything else and they're not allowed to consider you as lying. You know, we've gotten to the point now that they're supposed to be these people that are the constraints on the system, but then we constrain them so they can't be a constraint on the system. But it didn't work as a constraint on the system anyway, so it doesn't matter because the basic problem is sin. And and it's when you talk about pain, it's interesting to note that the way that somebody is experiencing pain might have – there might be no way that you could map that objectively and have any kind of physiological thing that you could measure to say, oh, this person is in pain. Like that pain in in a very real sense is a mental state. 
and because and, and that's not saying that it's a fake thing. Right. It's just saying that there's no way for a doctor to objectively measure pain. They the only thing that the doctor has is a patient's description of their pain. Which means you've got a doctor who may or may not have conflicting interests dealing with a person who may or may not be a liar and you think that that's a system that's going to solve this problem that's only getting bigger and bigger in the country. And obviously, like I said, there's no definitive test, but there are things There are things you can do to tell whether someone's actually in pain or not. No, there's not. No, I'm saying by their reaction, if they're not being consistent. I mean, if I, I, you know what I'm saying is... You, can, you <laughs> can test whether they are lying. Yes. Is what you're saying. That's you can't exactly tell whether saying. they're in pain. You can right. just tell whether they're lying. And I mean, and so, the, I mean, and so there is this part of it where, I mean... And, and this is one of the things we've kind of talked about before. So many things we kind of push up to the like the government level of like civil government, or we push up to policy. A lot of this really starts in the home. You know, I mean, a lot of these things they really begin. You know, how you teach your children to deal with pain, how you teach your. Ch- I mean, and, and and parents have to be careful of this. I mean, it's we had you know we have kids who have like their growing pains. When they, you know, their legs would hurt. Susan had really bad. My my wife had really bad when she was a kid. She would have really bad pains in her legs at certain times, and and it would cause her not to be able to sleep. And so there were kids that we would occasionally give ibuprofen to or things like that when they would wake up in the night crying because their legs hurt. But there's also a part where you have kids turn around and go, and this were like they were like six. You know, I mean, six or seven years old in this time period. You know, and you'd give them like a little bit of of a pain medicine or something like that. But then sometimes other kids would come and they would ask, "Can I have a pain medicine?" And you're going, why are you wanting pain medication? It's like, well, my arm hurts. Well, what ha- You know what I mean? And there's this part where you want your sons to grow up and deal with pain to some level. And it doesn't mean that you want them to be in pain, but you also say the world is the world has pain in it, right? I mean, I mean, I gotta go. I don't care. I mean, I mean, what I'm saying is you're not gonna go and do something to inflict no, pain. No, obviously but, not. But at the same time, you might have them go work really hard so they're sore and. You go to bed sometimes feeling sore, and that's not bad for you. That's And I wouldn't necessarily give them pain medication no. then because to some extent you need to build up their pain tolerance because, like you said, there's a lot of pain in this world. Right. And so there's this, so there's this, there's this fundamental attitude toward it. And then at the same time, you can have people fall off. And I've had people who go, any sort of pain medication is sinful because if God gave you the pain, you shouldn't try to deal with it. So if you, a woman is pregnant, she shouldn't have any pain medication. And it's like... You know what I mean? And that's he made the drugs right. so that yeah, he made the drugs to alleviate pain, so you can't say that all pain should just be suffered through. Right. And so I mean, but in the end, I mean, the 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 government that largely handles that is the family government that really teaches the baseline for how you move through the world and how you think about your personal pain, and even teaching you to be honest about your pain. You know what I mean? Because it's like you said, it's very easy to lie about pain. Children learn very early that if they can get out of work by having pain, well, they have pain. And now you've got someone who starts to learn how to navigate through the world by by presenting themselves to others as... And the problem with it, because it is a mental state, is that they then can convince themselves that they have pain, and then they start to believe they have pain. And they, in a sense, because it is in their mind, they do have have pain. pain. Even though they may not have a physiological condition that's created the pain, they now believe they're in pain. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it gets to be a very complicated thing. 
But, you know, I was talking to an ER doc. This was like some years ago. But he was saying that now when they come in and somebody says that they ha- – you were saying about testing for pain. That right. if they come in and they say they're 11, level 9 and they're looking at them and go, no, you're not. They're not allowed to say anything or do anything. Right. They have to write down the 9 or, or they're breaking the law. And they're not allowed to question them. Even if they know they're lying, they're not allowed to question them. Right. And it, and used, so, and it used to be they had a lot more discretion – and at the same time, they would also, you know, you'd talk to a doctor and he would go, yes, you are going to give some people who are just addicts drugs. And that's going to happen. And there's other times where you're going to be able to know that you're dealing with someone and you're going to be able to help them by, you know. But, I mean, there was they accepted the fact that people had to use their own discretion. And now they've kind of moved it to, nope. And which which raises but, the question of why are, you, why are you making them go to the ER to get the drugs? Why don't you just let them buy the drugs to you know what I mean? Which is, which which is, is what we did. Which, which is, is what happened with alcohol. Right. You know, the, the biggest drug in America. Right. Say. And so, I mean, I think as we just talk about prescriptions, we should just recognize how much that system has failed. And it, that system's failed, and it's really driven the cost of, of medicine substantially higher because how many times do the doctors when you go in all they do is prescribe you a drug that they could have told you on the phone or if you walked into a pharmacy you know it's very interesting because going to nigeria if you have a problem you just walk into a pharmacy and say i want this and they'll hand it to you and you know in a lot of cases you know what the problem is in some cases you don't and then you need the expert to tell you what the problem is and granted, their experts aren't very good but you you get an expert to tell you what the problem is but you know how many times you don't need that doctor to say, you know, I remember growing up, you have an earache. There are certain medications that you give for an earache, and it doesn't take a rocket science to say you have an earache. Right. But yet we've driven costs through the roof through the prescription system, and it really hasn't worked. Right. It really hasn't solved any of the problems. Yeah. We had an eye doctor several years ago. We were getting ready to go on a trip, and one of our kids had Something was bothering him in his eye, and we were right by. We were at Costco, so we took, we'll just slip in here and see if she has a minute to take a look real quick. And she's she had like, a minute to take. She actually, really? yeah, she did. Wow. She, she was. We, we had, I think she, we had gotten our glass, glasses filled there, and she was nice. And she, she pulled him in, and she just goes, she goes, just FYI, and this is something that I pretty much I knew generally from being in, having been a paramedic and things. But she goes, ninety nine point nine percent of everything I do here you could just flush with or flush with you know flush with a, a sterile saline and she goes i mean she goes literally she goes that's probably too low of a number she goes that is that is all almost any of the patients that i so, see here so she's an optometrist if it if it's any worse than that that you can't do it she refers you're anyway going to oral surgery right? <laughs> right i mean she's like right and exactly. she's like but she goes she goes and I hope you're not your optometrist is not recommending oral surgery. If your eye offends you, have your mouth worked on. This was paid for by uh, by the, <laughs> the dental association. So she, she said basically anything more than that, you'd have to go in for eye surgery. You know, what I mean, but she's like, this is all you really need for pretty much anything. When we think about something like like illegal drugs and drugs that are used to, to change your mental state, we shouldn't just go, oh, they're bad or, oh, they're good. What we should do instead is say, what does God have to say about them? That's the standard for all these things. And so often what we do is instead of looking at them and saying, what, how did God make this for good and how do we use it for evil? We just say it's evil or it's good. Instead, what we need to do is try to look at things through God's eyes instead of our own eyes. Thanks for joining us. 
This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thank you.